All right. Praise God, you guys. Happy uh, 4th of July. I don't usually do a 4th of July message because 4th of July doesn't usually fall on a Sunday, and I usually want to stay in the Word on a Sunday, and even if I had a 4th of July message, to be in the Word still. And this is kind of a 4th of July message, but we will be in the Word. Uh, in fact, you're going to have to really put your thinking cap on in the name of the Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, be discerning, read the Word with me. We're going to really dive in. But, uh, you know, we are thankful. I, hopefully, you're very thankful for our uh, independence as a nation. Uh, it's kind of weird because you have the winds of change, change blowing strong right now towards socialism with many uh, academics and the universities, the professors and so forth, and many of the young people and so forth, uh, and even many actually wanting communism, you know. Uh, a lot of the Democratic Party just, you know, celebrating the 100th birthday of the Communist Party in China, uh, ignoring all the uh, rights abuses with many, many people, including Christian pastors being in prison, people in concentration camps there, Muslims. We're not Muslims. We don't agree with the teachings of Islam, but to put people in concentration camps or in camps uh, for uh, their beliefs is just amazing that that's going on in this world. And when you look at the history of the Soviet Union, uh, Mao, China under Mao as well, uh, there's been over 100 million murders, killings, uh, people killed under those regimes, and that's a uh, conservative, you know, estimate. Uh, some put it up 150, 160. But uh, when you look at Stalin and Mao and so forth and national socialism, Nazism is actually a shorter, you know, is a, a, a German term for national socialism, okay? And if, you're not even, if you count the deaths of people that were killed in the wars of Nazi Germany, it's over 50 million, you know, if you want to keep adding the numbers, you know? Uh, so uh, we don't want to go back to a tyrannical governmental system, but we also recognize that what we stand for as Christians, first and foremost, is not any political party. Uh, I, don't, I don't say, hey, I'm this or I'm that. We stand for Jesus and his truth, amen, and we exalt him. However, we recognize, too, that uh, isms can lead to a lot of bloodshed, and our nation was founded upon the idea that there would not be tyranny over the people that would dictate their belief systems and so forth. So we should be thankful for that, amen? And also uh, not very appreciative of that. But first and foremost, that's as much as I'll probably say about the fourth, I'll say a little bit more, but first and foremost, we want to talk about the freedom that we have in Jesus, amen? You know, years ago, uh, the, one of the most popular or biggest battles ever was D-Day during World War II to dislodge the occupied Nazi front that was in an occupying France at the time. And a ton of people died in that, right? And it's really, really heartbreaking when you think of what happened there. And it's interesting because uh, that's the highest ever, uh, largest seaborne invasion in military history. I mean, if you, many of you see movies on D-Day. Pretty, pretty amazing when you think about it. Uh, and many people gave up their lives, you know, for the freedom of uh, the French, and a lot of American soldiers. And it's interesting, uh, there was a little village there named Asamer Uglis, uh, which uh, the Madame Simone Renault was known for, is really famous now, or should be famous now. She's not really famous. She should be famous because Brother Doug Stevelton did a video about her called The Mother of Normandy. And we have that available if you want it, you know, you can check it out. Uh, it's 
amazing. He did a great job on that. And it's a full-blown, I mean, it's a documentary that they should be having on the History Channel because it's about uh, the Mother Normandy and how, because uh, thousands of troops had stormed that little town that she was in. Uh, and her husband was the mayor and thousands of people were killed. So they've got a cemetery right there. And many of the uh, American paratroopers uh, landed in the trees and the Germans didn't take any prisoners there. They just shot him to death, you know. My dad was, you know, a paratrooper, but he was in the Philippines on his way to Japan right before the atom bombs dropped in Nagasaki and Hiroshima. So uh, he most likely would have been dead. I wouldn't be here today. Uh, so it was interesting when you think of the, the ethics of the atom bomb. Do you just let the war continue with the aggressors continuing to take land and kill people? Or do you stop it? So it's interesting. My perspective is quite interesting because of my dad's perspective on it, you know. Uh, but uh, many of those paratroopers were put to death there. Thousands of people were killed. And they ended up in that cemetery, and many of them were just forgotten soldiers, many unmarked graves, of course, and so forth. And people began to write letters and so forth. Uh, and interestingly, uh, there, Madame Simone Renault, and Doug just, you got to watch the video. <laughs> it's really awesome. Uh, she just began answering letters. She began visiting graves for that people, say, can you put flowers on my son's grave? And very emotional, very powerful. He's got a lot of uh, people in military positions uh, giving testimonies about it and so forth, and her family, her children. It's really powerful, Doug. You did a great job on that. So I encourage you on that. So it makes you realize the cost of freedom, even physical freedom. And we should be incredibly thankful. But the cost of spiritual freedom and being free, to, free from our sins, which also becomes physical, right? And that in the resurrection and so forth is the highest price was paid, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says, that no one could redeem his brother, that the soul is very costly, says in the scripture. And we can't redeem each other. We have our own sins. We don't even have a righteous life to give. And if we had a righteous life to give, I try to remind you, if God would take one righteous life, he'd only give you one, because that's all we'd be worth, amen? But God became a man as the infinite God-man. God, he shed his own blood as the God-man. Acts chapter, or, uh, yeah, Acts chapter 20 says that God shed his blood. It was in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who's both God and man. That's an incredible thing when you realize what Jesus went through and how much he loved us. And I constantly pray, you know, that God would help us to appreciate more the height, the depth, the, the, the length, the width of God's love for us in Christ Jesus. Because that's Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 3. And that's my prayer and should be your prayer as well. So we don't want to forget the ultimate sacrifice that was made for our independence, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. He came, and while we celebrate the, the freedom of our nation, Jesus came to set us free, amen? What were we enslaved to? Sin. We were enslaved to sin, yes. We were enslaved to the flesh. We were enslaved to uh, death. We were enslaved to, uh, I should say, we were enslaved to uh, sin, uh, the flesh, uh, death, uh, Satan, and Hades. Five things right there. And in my message, I was going to go through many of them that I just mentioned of how we've been set free from each of these. That was my message. That was my outline. You know, everything except the flesh that I just mentioned. I was going to go take you through four of them. Uh, uh, but as I began to work on just the first one that people shouted out, because that's the first thing we often think of as sin. As I began to camp out on the first one, you know me, you know, uh, I got mm, 22 pages of notes, you know. I got, I got rid of two of the pages and crossed out half a page. So and I'm, we're going to get through them. We're going to be done at what time we get done? Well, it used to be 11. We're getting down at 1045 lately, earlier. Lord willing, hopefully we'll be done by then. I think we will. 
but you're going to learn a lot. Do you come to just sit here and do your time? No, you come to celebrate the Lord and learn, amen? And I can guarantee you that you'll learn and understand more about Romans chapter 7 and how and what the context is there uh, and have a better argument as to what the answer is to that problem than if you'd gone to any seminary pretty much, honestly, because I've seen the arguments, you know. In fact, I'm going to give you more reasons, more contrast from Romans 7, which you'll understand why I'm going to do contrast than I think I've elicited I've ever seen. And I'm only saying that because I want you to challenge you to have your eyes open and really pay attention because wrong doctrine leads to wrong living. Sound doctrine leads to sound living. And it's imperative that we understand what the Scripture is talking about, especially when we get to a passage in Romans 7 where Paul seems to be, if you isolate the text and read it out of its context, talking in the present tense about how he's absolutely defeated by sin. And that he's like, you would think that Paul's an adulterer or actually, you know, a fornicator because he wasn't married, a drunkard, a reviler, an evil, wicked person. If you read Romans 7 out of context, that's not Paul at all. Because Paul, as you'll see contextually, is talking about his old life before he came to Christ. And that was the teaching, by the way, of the early church for the first three centuries of church history. We don't see anybody saying anything but that in the early Christian church for the first three centuries, which is longer than we've been a nation until Augustine, the Roman Catholic uh, theologian, arose in the fourth century. So, but Jesus came to set us free, amen? When Jesus went in Luke chapter 4, uh, he went into the wilderness and he was tested by the devil. He came back and he opened, he went to a synagogue and opened a scroll in the eyes of the Jewish leaders and so forth and other uh, Jewish believers. And he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives or freedom to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set free those who are oppressed. Amen. Jesus came to set us free. Amen. And Paul says, stand fast the freedom where God has set you free. Don't be entangled again in the yoke of bondage in Galatians chapter 5. In John chapter 8 verse 31, it says, so Jesus was saying to the Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Truly, truly, I say to you, he says a little bit later, everyone who commits in the same chapter, a couple verses later, everyone who commits sin is a what? Is the what? Slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be what? Free indeed. Amen? Absolutely. Free indeed. When Jesus was on the cross, he cried out, Seven sayings. What was one of the sayings? It starts with the T in the Greek. We would say T in English in the transliteration. Tetelestai, which means what? Paid in full or it is finished. He paid the price. He set us free from the penalty of our sins. Amen. But a lot of people unfortunately stopped there. A lot of Christians are like, yeah, I'm free from the penalty of sin. But they don't realize often, many professing Christians, that Jesus also died to set us free from the power of sin. And ultimately from the presence of sin. His blood is so precious. And when Jesus died on the cross for you, yes, to tell us that I paid it for, we paid the price. Praise God, we are justified. We've been declared righteous, amen. We're no longer under condemnation because of what he did for us on the cross. And he definitely wanted to do that for us. But he also did it to transform us and, and deliver us not only from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin, amen. And ultimately from the presence of sin. Because in 2 Peter chapter 3, the scriptures are very, very clear that he will create a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. You're not going to have a bunch of wicked people 
living and practicing and rebelling against God in heaven. You're not going to have anybody doing that in the new heaven and the new earth. Because if anyone be in Christ, Paul said in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, he is a new creation, amen? Behold, old things have passed away and all things have become new, amen? So we become new. He delivers not only from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin, where, where sin no longer is to reign over us. In Romans 6, he talks about how we're not to yield our bodies as members of sin, as instruments of unrighteousness, but that we're to be slaves to God and we are to yield them as, in service to God. So the scriptures are very, very clear that Paul understands, and the author of Hebrews did as well, chapter 12, verses 14 and 15, pursue peace and holiness, pursue ho- peace and pursue holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, that we are to perfect holiness in the fear of the Lord, cleansing ourselves of all the sins of the flesh and of the spirit. We're supposed to be walking in holiness. That's the normal Christian life. When you see someone serious about God and seeking to crucify the flesh, Jesus said, you can't be my disciple unless what? You deny yourself. You deny yourself. You take up your cross and follow me. A true disciple, as I just read, Jesus says, continues to follow his word. Amen. Continues to walk in his word. That's true Christianity. This idea that you receive forgiveness at some altar and then you're forgiven and you just live as you want and live a life of sin and go to heaven is a lie. Okay. That's from the pit of hell. Okay. That's from the evil one. Because the scriptures, Paul's very, very clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that he says, Know ye not that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Then he gives a vice that's neither fornicators and adulterers and drunkards and revilers, extortioners and so forth will inherit the kingdom of God. He says, don't be deceived. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. In Galatians chapter five and verse six, he gives a vice list. And he says again in chapter six, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. He that sows the flesh will from the flesh reap destruction. He that sows from the the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. And we shall reap if we continue. And by the way, in chapter five, he gives a vice list. And he says, those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now he's not saying those who fall short, those who fall into sin at at times in their life or struggle with sin, uh, are, are, are on that list. No, it's those who practice sin, those who don't repent of their sin and continue in rebellion to God. They won't inherit God's kingdom. And again, he says in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 8, the same thing. He gives a vice list again. Uh, and he, he talks about, let no one deceive you with vain words, for those who do these things will not have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. It's very, very clear. However, we're being told today on the basis of a twisting of Romans chapter 7 that we can live a life of rebellion to God. We can live a life and practice sin. And indeed, we're being told that the Apostle Paul basically contradicted everything else he said everywhere else and lived a life of sin. And it's a totally misunderstanding of Romans chapter 7, which I want to under- you to understand. So I thought I'm going to take this opportunity to really jump into Romans chapter 7. And this is a teaching a lot of people, if they were to do it, might do on a midweek study. Because they just want to go some just real simple on Sunday, attract people, grow the fellowship. And then what you did is you get a lot of milky Christians, you know. That's not our heart here, okay. We get in the word together, and this isn't that hard to understand, okay. Everybody can understand this unless you're a, a, a child, you know, young. Or unless someone's going to go over your head, or I don't explain it right, and I'll probably do that at times, so you blame it on me, okay. But you have the ability by the grace of God and his spirit to have a comprehension, at least to one degree or another, of what's going on there because it was written to be understood. However, Paul, Peter warns, that there are certain false teachers in the church who are twisting 2 Peter chapter 3, who are twisting Paul's teachings because he said in some places, Paul wrote things that are hard to understand, which he said the unstable, they twist to their own destruction. 
And Romans 7 is one of those passages that has been twisted. In fact, in the early church, for the first few centuries, you don't see anybody having an understanding that that's Paul talking about his life as a Christian until, only once you did have people doing it, but they weren't in the church. They were Gnostics. Okay, the Gnostics twisted many, many scriptures. Uh, Elaine Pagels, who wrote uh, the Gnostic Gospel, who wrote, she's one of the top writers of Gnosticism, and she is a Gnostic. She admits, I have a book I just got from her about a year, well, almost a year ago, where she gives a list of scriptures that the Gnostics took to, to believe that they were, were for free to sin, you know? And when you look at what the Gnostics used, they used Romans chapter 7. By the way, Augustine was a Manichaean Gnostic for nine or ten years, depending on which scholar you go by there, uh, a long time before he became a professing Christian. And then he taught the same thing the early church had taught for three years, that Romans 7 is not about Paul as a Christian, but his pre-Christian life as a Jew, as a Pharisee and what have you. But then when he got in a battle with Pelagius, and Pelagius was saying, hey, look, in Romans 7, it shows that there's free will, because in Romans 7, this person wants to do what's right, you know, but, but they can't. They end up doing what's wrong, and the things they do want to do, they don't do, and the things they don't want to do, they do, and, and uh, Pelagius saying, look, that shows that people have freedom before they come to Christ to actually will what's right. And that blew Augustine away, like, no way. So he switched the viewpoint to, which also aligned more with his life, if you read the confessions of Augustine, he, fit, he switched it to totally a new teaching of the church, which agreed with the Gnostics now. He swung the pendulum too far the other way and said, yes, this is Paul before he was a Christian. I'm sorry, this is Paul as a Christian, Augustine said, which was false. So, uh, we want to get, when you want to get into this, I want you to go to Romans 7 and please understand what I'm saying here does not mean that every person that holds at Romans chapter 7 uh, ha, is Paul's life now when he's a believer after he became a Christian is a heretic. It doesn't, people just misunderstand it often because Paul uses an effect. He uses a, uh, a literary device by speaking in the present tense to make it come alive, which the scriptures do a lot. Okay, and I'm going to address the present tense in a subsequent message this coming Wednesday night. I'm excited. It's coming Wednesday night. I'm excited about that message too. Uh, that's one reason I was able to chop this message down a little bit. I'm like, what can I take out? I go, it's too long, you know. And I can, there's some heavy stuff I want to really share uh, because Paul often uses the present tense of something that happened in the past at, to make it dramatic. People do that all the time, you know. They say, the baseball player, yeah, I was at bat, at bat, and here I am at bat, and the pitch is coming. And, and I swing, man, I got two strikes on me. It's the last inning, you know, and, there's, and, and we're down by one and no one's on base, you know. And then, you know, he pitches and I swing the bat. You don't think, oh, he's talking about something that's happening right now. You realize that happens. You see the authors do it all the time because it makes it very dramatic. And that's what Paul is doing. But I won't say much more about the present tense until uh, uh, this coming Wednesday's message, which will be part two of this message. And I hope you want to be there. I hope you're like, I want to understand what God's word says. Amen. I want to know what he says. Amen. So, uh, reformed scholar, a Calvinistic scholar, uh, Douglas Moo. I'm not a Calvinist, but I like Douglas Moo. Okay. I speak strongly against Calvinism because I believe it's wrong. In fact, Douglas Moo, one of the reasons I like him is his commentary in second Peter. He says, the more I look at scriptures, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, the more I say the scripture, the more, a lot of times I realize my Calvinism doesn't fit. You know, I like that about him, but I also like his scholarship. Douglas Moo is a Calvinist, and most Calvinists believe that Paul was t 
talking about his current life in Romans chapter 7 and how he was living a wicked life. Douglas Moo uh, states, and by the way, Douglas Moo uh, held that view too. And then he said with deeper study of scripture and looking at what Paul was saying in the context there, he came to the conclusion, no, Paul was actually talking about before he was a Christian. And Douglas Moo states that uh, in his commentary on Romans, uh, regarding Romans 7, uh, that, quote, most Pauline scholars, most Pauline scholars, scholars that study Paul, they're known for their studying Paul's writings, think that Paul describes his life as a Jew under the law. Okay, that's true. Now, most scholars, and that doesn't mean what scholars believe because scholars believe it are right. Scholars be wrong, right? But he came to that same conclusion, and most Pauline scholars, he's saying, believe Paul's not talking about his life now in Romans 7. He's talking about pre-Christian when he was under the law. And I think the context bears that out very clearly. I think most scholars are right in that context. If most scholars believe that, well, how come pop Christianity, when you listen to Christian radio, it's always being explained, oh, this is Paul living a wicked life, basically. And they don't like to put it that way, but that's what they're basically saying, and so forth. It's because they misunderstand the context. Sometimes it's because it's a license to live a life of sin and say, oh, well, if Paul lived a wicked life, you know, and was in bondage to sin and reprobate in many ways, well, how can I hope for anything better? So I guess I'm okay. I don't have to repent. Now, I had a brother share with me not too long ago, uh, last year. He said, Joe, I would justify my backslidden state with Romans 7 until I started hearing your teachings. And when I realized the truth, I was like, I have to repent and get right with God. And now he's him and his wife. They're following the Lord strong. I think his wife was already, she was already following, but he had fallen into just a life of just not following the Lord anymore, doing his own thing, and hiding behind this, this Romans 7, he said. Uh, David, who's going to start, hopefully, Lord willing, if it's your will, Lord, a blessed hope in Costa Rica, where the, our brothers and sisters just came back from. He said, he goes, man, I was living a life of sin. And he remembered the first time we visited. And he said, and I heard all kinds of pastors justifying it. He goes, but I knew that you guys didn't believe you could just live a life of sin. He goes, I went and listened to everything you, you, I could find on the internet that you taught. And I listened to many things two or three times. And I realized, man, I'm, the scriptures don't teach that. I better get right with God. And I, I, he got right with God. He's now he's following Jesus. He loves Jesus. He wept over and over again when the, we were there visiting him. I wasn't there, but when our fellowship was there, you know. And uh, th- those are just two stories, guys. You can multiply that in, in, at, by, by probably thousands of people who live wicked lifestyles until they hear the truth and realize, uh-oh, I can't hide behind the Scriptures. Certainly the Gnostics were hiding behind Romans 7, but a bad interpretation of Scripture. Uh, D.D. Uh, Wedden, Wedden, in Wedden's Commentary of the New Testament, Volume 3, published in 1871. Listen to what he wrote, quote, It has for ages been debated whether verses 17 through, or I'm sorry, verses 13 through 25 describe the case of an unregenerate or regenerate man, saved person or unsaved person. For the first three centuries, the entire Christian church with one accord applied it solely to the unregenerate man, someone who was unsaved. That's how they understood it. It seemed too low a moral picture of a professor of a new Christian life as the apostle in the main current of thought is describing its application to the regenerate or saved man was first invented by Augustine, who was followed by many eminent scholars or doctors of the Middle Ages. After the Reformation, the interpretation by Augustine was largely adopted, especially by the followers of John Calvin. So it's very, very popular of you, uh, but not 
among the Calvinists, and then it spread through the church because the Calvinists have a strong influence on the church. And, uh, but it was not the teaching of the early church. Either was the Calvinistic church, understanding of Romans 9, the teaching of the early church. By the way, uh, Adam Clark, who was the chief theologian under John Wesley, he writes this about the misuse of Romans 7. The theory that this is the experience of all Christians has most pitifully and most shamefully not only lowered the standard of Christianity, but destroyed its influence and disgraced its character. I agree with that. In fact, when John Wesley came around, he saw what they came to term the frozen chosen and an apathy in the church and people just thinking you're supposed to be defeated. And Wesley uh, preached perfect love and that you could walk in holiness and you can, we're called to live a holy and righteous life. Amen. Now, I don't agree 100% with Wesley because I don't believe the Baptist Holy Spirit is a subsequent salvation and an ultimate sanctification experience. I believe that starts right when we're saved. So I'm actually more in line with Calvinists as far as when salvation, when sanctification starts. It's when we receive Christ in our hearts. We're regenerated. We're born again. We begin to be set apart. He begins to make us holy. Amen. But uh, I prefer a lot of Wesley's doctrine, obviously, to Calvin's. And Calvin wasn't the one who came up with that understanding. There were Christians all over have believed that sanctification starts when you first become a believer. John MacArthur on page 190 of the Gospel According to Jesus, which has a lot of good things against it, in it against easy believism. It's actually got some really good things to say. However, in this book, he says, Romans 7 is a classic text describing the believer's struggle with his sinful flesh. Note that while Paul acknowledged his own disobedience, okay, Paul, he's saying Paul's talking about his own disobedience and that this describes, the classic text describes the Christian walk. Wrong. <laughs> no, it doesn't. It contradicts everything else Paul said about the Christian walk, but it, do, it doesn't contradict it because Paul is not talking about the Christian walk. Paul is talking about when he was a Jew before he got converted. Understand this. We're talking about Romans 7. If you got lost and you're like, man, how do I, what's this going on here? We're talking about Romans chapter 7, a very controversial passage where Paul is describing what it was like when he first, be, before he became a Christian, when he became aware of the law of Moses as a child, and when he didn't even know what the law was, and then he becomes aware of it. And all of a sudden he realizes he can't, he's trying to keep the commandments, but he can't, he's breaking them, and the law showed that he was a sinner in need of salvation. And Romans 7 is not talking about when Paul was saved, but before Paul was saved, I'm contending. And most, as I mentioned, Pauline scholars agree with that. I've taught that since... You ever listen to any message I've ever done on Romans 7? I don't think I've, I don't know if I've ever done a message on Romans 7, by the way, just in 30 plus years. We need to go through the book of Romans verse by verse sometime. I've mentioned it several times here and there, but we're going to look at uh, Romans 6, 7, and 8. So obviously we can't go through every, every, all three chapters, but I want to do some contrast. Because you know what, the, how you understand Romans chapter 7? You understand Romans 6 and Romans 8, the chapter before and after. The answer to Romans 7 is Romans 6 and Romans 8, the context, okay? You also read Romans chapter 7 in the context in which it was inspired by the Holy Spirit in which Paul testifies. So there's two options regarding Romans 7. Now again, why would Romans 7 be such a sticking point? Well, go to Romans chapter 7. Probably everybody is there except uh, for me. But it's interesting, when you go to Romans 7... If you just look at some of the things that Paul says, you know, he says things like, uh, verse 19, for the good that I want to do, I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. So in verse 19, 
Paul is saying that he practices evil, yet which would contradict 1 Corinthians 6, Galatians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5, where he says, don't be deceived. And he talks about those who practice evil will not inherit God's kingdom. Those who practice sin. So some will take these verses and they often don't look at the context. Your average Christian, when they say, oh yeah. And by the way, you'll see it all over the internet. People justifying sin and well, guess what? Romans 7, you know, Paul, Paul gave into sin all the time. So I must too. Or it's okay if Paul, you know, on and on and on you see it. And it's heartbreaking because a lot of souls, I believe, potentially millions of souls are being damned because a, a false teaching, not intended to be necessarily by those who teach it, of Romans 7 and other passages that are being misunderstood and not held up to the context of Paul's overall writing or even the immediate context. So is it true, as MacArthur states, that Romans 7 is a classic text describing the believer's struggle with his sinful flesh? Is that true? Was that true? Because Paul is Paul. Now, Paul says this right here that things, you know, he says clearly, for the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. Paul, as we're going to see in the context, is not talking about his Christian life. He's being dramatic in the present tense, talking about what it was like when he became aware of the law and the struggle he was in before he got set free from not only the power of, or I'm sorry, the penalty of sin, but be from the power of sin, okay? Now, first of all, understand this. This would utterly contradict what Paul says about his life everywhere else after Christ. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 2.10. You yourselves are witnesses and so is God, that we were devout and honest and faultless and faultless toward all of you believers. Wow. He's loving his neighbors himself, it sounds like. Amen. Second Corinthians 1.12. We can say with confidence and clear conscience that we have lived with God a given holiness and sincerity in all our dealings. In all our dealings. Sincerity. We have depended on God's grace, not on our own human wisdom. That is how we have conducted ourselves before the world and especially toward you. Lived a righteous life, man. Philippians 4, 9. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice <laughs> and the God of peace will be with you. In other words, Paul says, my life is so holy, you can follow it as a pattern of how to live a holy life. Okay. He also writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and chapter 11. He, he's speaking of Timothy, will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Wow. So, it's interesting. Now, I think it's important that we understand as I mentioned, the immediate context of Romans chapter 7. And you're going to be seeing chapter 6 and 8, and you're going to be like, wow, 6 and 8 are totally different than Romans 7. That's right, because 6 and 8 are about Paul as a Christian and what we're called to as Christians. Romans 7 is about how Paul made the transition from being lost and unconverted, pre-Christian life, to Christ, okay, which I think is very, very important that we understand it. In fact, let's look at some contrast between Romans 7 and Romans chapter 6 and Romans chapter 8. Understand what I'm going to do? We look at what Paul says in Romans 7, which I'm contending, listen carefully, I'm contending Romans 7 is Paul talking his pre-Christian life before he's converted. We're going to contrast Romans 7 with chapter 6 and 8 and show that he's talking about two totally different lives. 
one before Christ and one after. Also, we're going to see in Romans chapter 7, a clear transition where Paul is clearly talking about before he was a Christian when you look at the context of Romans chapter 7. Now, when we looked at this contrast, it's interesting because you're going to see that in Romans 7, Paul doesn't know Jesus, okay? He's in bondage to sin. He's trying to keep the law of Moses. In Romans 7, Paul is trying to keep the law of Moses. Do we try to keep the law of Moses as Christians? No. But in Romans chapter 7, Paul is dead in his sins. Are Christians dead in their sins? No, okay? And I'm going to start showing you some of these contrasts. Now, in Romans chapter 6, 7, verses 5 and 6, Paul tips us off about his contrast between his life in the flesh and what happened in regard to when he became a Christian. In fact, let's go to chapter 7, verses 5 and 6. For while we were in the flesh right, which was the past, right? The sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for what? Death. He's talking about when we're in the flesh, guess what? Yeah, guess what? The passions were stirred. We we're under the law. Uh, you know, we bore the fruit of death. However, look at verse six. But now, meaning as Christians, what? We have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. So what he's doing in 5 and 6, he's setting up what he's going to say in Romans 7 and show the transition. Paul does this a lot in his letters. He'll, he'll say some things and he'll leave some loose ends at first and then all of a sudden he'll get back to him. You'll realize that was introductory comments. What he's going to get into deeper, you don't necessarily know he's going to get into it. So right here in verses 5 and 6, he's talking about how we were wicked when we were in the flesh under the law. Because Paul, keep in mind, was a Pharisee even, okay? Was a Jew, and he was defeated by trying to keep God's law. But he didn't have the power of the Holy Spirit to do it. But then he says, ha, then he says in verse 6, but now, that was then, but now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. Okay? So number one, I want us to see that he's talking about his old life in chapter 6 and 8, talk about his new life. But even Romans 7 gets you, gives you an understanding of where he's going with his arguments, okay? Now, it's interesting. Look at Romans chapter 7, verse 13. Romans 7, verse 13. Therefore, did that which is good, he's talking about the law of Moses, it's good, it shows our sinfulness. Therefore, did that which is good come, uh, become a cause of death for me? May it never be. He's asking a question. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? He's having a discussion about the law and how the law brings death, but not because the law is bad, but because we're bad. And that's his argument here, not to show this is what it means to live a Christian life. That's not the context at all. The context is talking about what it meant to live under the law, okay? In fact, it's interesting. Let's look at the, uh, uh, you know, it was actually, there's a couple purposes of the law revealed in Romans 7, showing that it's holy, showing that we're sinful, and showing that it's a school teacher that leads us to Christ, okay? In fact, you need to understand that. The law in Romans 7, Paul's showing that it's holy and that it shows our sinfulness and that it is a tutor that leads us to Jesus Christ. Now, context is king. Let's read that same verse again, but let's read the broader context in verses 9 through 15. Romans 7, 9 through 15. Paul says, I was once alive apart from the law. Hmm. Is he talking about as a Christian? No. He says, I once, was once alive apart from the law. This is before he became aware of Torah, the Jewish law. 
the law of Moses. I was alive. So when babies die, we talk about how they're with Jesus, amen, because they're not held accountable to breaking God's law. Amen, you understand that, right? Well, he says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive, and I what? I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. In other words, guess what? If we follow the law, it's, it gives, it's life, but we can't follow it. It kills us because we're sinful. So it was supposed to result in life to me, resulted in death. So guess what? When did Paul die spiritually? When he became aware of the law of Moses, became accountable that I need to obey God and rebelled against it. That's, you were born alive spiritually, okay? When you die, you go right to heaven. But as soon as you break God's moral law, sin sets in, rebellion against God, you become accountable because you now know the law. You become accountable before God. And you need to be born again. You need to be saved. Amen. Look at verse 11. This is so important. For sin taking an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore did that which was good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good. So that through the commandment sin would be Come utterly sinful, that God would reveal how sinful we are. Okay, verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. Come on, guys. What's he talking about? Is the context of his Christian life here? No, guys. All you have to do is read the context, man. Now he's starting to talk in the present tense, but he's talking in the present tense for effect. And I'll show you that, that he does that a lot through his letters. Even in Romans chapter 3, he does that. And everybody knows he's not talking about the, his past in Romans 3. When he talks about, about being a liar. He's just being a, it's a dramatic effect. Here, Paul, we just traced, is talking about he was alive spiritually. Then he became dead when sin came. And then he said, guess what? Sin, because the law showed that sin was not just, that, that sin was, that, that were sinners, but it made sin appear what? Utterly what? Sinful. Now he gets dramatic to show how sinful it made it appear in his life. That's why he says, for, while, for what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I'm not, uh, I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want, I agree with the law. Confessing the law is good. He's talking about a Jew. He became a Pharisee. He's trying to keep God's law. And for formally in front of others, he seemed perfect, you know, Philippians chapter three. But internally, he knew he was a sinner. He's even having Christians killed eventually. Amen. Are you with me so far? Can't, don't just let somebody read the f- last few verses or so of Romans chapter seven. Say, hey, look, that's a present tense. Say, back up, buddy. Okay. I love you, but back up. Okay. He's talking about his life and how he came under the conviction of the law and that led him to Jesus. And he's showing, because Romans, by the way, is re- written to Jews and Gentiles, right? You know, he also speaks to non-believing Jews often in this book. Go to Romans 11. He wants to be, make them jealous and so forth that they come to Christ. It's, it's written to the church, but it's also like a tract to bring Jews and make them jealous to Christ. And so he's addressing the Jews, answering the question as well as Jewish believers as to why God brought the law then. If we're not under the law of Moses now, why did he bring it? It was to show us our need for the Savior, amen. Are you with me? Amen. So context is absolutely is king, okay? Now, in Romans 3, 19 and 20, Paul says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. 
so that every mouth may be closed and that all the world may become accountable to God. Because the works, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So that's kind of what he's saying in Romans 7. Now he's elaborated on this in Romans 7 on how you can't be saved by the law, that it shows you your sinfulness. And you know what? How many of you realize, how many before you were Christians, you wanted to do what's right often and you just continued to do what was wrong and just continued to rebel before you were Christians, before you knew God. Your conscience bore witness that, hey, you're doing what's wrong, right? And the things you didn't want to do, a lot of times you did. The things you didn't want to do, you didn't do, you know? And, uh, you know, I mean, I think of guys throughout church history. I think of Martin Luther, you know, he's flogging himself with a whip, things that aren't even in the law, right? But he's trying to obey God according to the Catholic dictates. And he so much wanted to please God. And even here, it says the Romans had a zeal for God, Paul says in Romans 9 through 11. They had a zeal for God. You can't say they didn't have a zeal for God and you can't will to do what's right. No, certainly Martin Luther was willing to do what's right, but he couldn't. He came under the conviction that he was a, it was, it was a sinner. And then he came upon the understanding that the just shall live by faith. Same with John Wesley. Wesley even started the Holiness Club, which all kinds of people joined to live a holy life. But deep down, he knew he was empty without God, not converted, not born again. And then it led him, God used you know, his law, including uh, obviously his moral law there, to convict him. And then he cried out to God, the just shall live by faith. Reading Galatians, and he got saved, he got born again. Okay, and Paul is, Paul is letting us know, you know, God uses his law to bring us to himself. It's a tutor. Galatians chapter three, verse 34, listen to this. For the law, so the law became our guardian to lead us to Christ. You catch that? So the law became our guardian to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. So what Paul's gonna show here in Romans seven is he tried to keep the law and it killed him. And he tried to keep it, but he couldn't. He had no power, he was powerless because you know, he didn't have the power to do what's right. And then guess what? Guess what? It led him to Christ. Just like it says in Galatians 3, the law is a tutor or a guardian, a pedagogue in the Greek, to lead us to Christ. Uh, well, guess what? Go to Romans 7. Romans chapter 7, verse 21. I find then the principle of evil is present in me. And one who wants to do, the one who wants to do good. So he says the one who wants to do good. He gets a picture. He goes, I'm picture, he's picturing the one that wants to do good. For I joyfully agree with the law of God, just like the Jews had a zeal for God in Romans, the non-believing Jews that didn't know Jesus. I agree with the law of God in the inner person, but I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, the law which is, uh, the law which is in my body, my body parts. Look at verse 25, he asks a question. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of this death? So it convicts him. He needs to realize he needs to be saved. He realizes I'm doomed. I can't keep God's holy law. Wretched man that I am, who's gonna save me from this body of death? That all leads up to him coming to Jesus. The law leads us to Christ. Look at the very next verse, verse 25. You have the answer to that question. Thanks be to God through who? Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord because the law convicts him of sin, shows him he's dead, shows him he's doomed, shows him he's powerless, shows him that he has no hope out of crying out to God, wretched man I am, who will save me from this body of death? And then he says, thanks be to Jesus. Then everything changes. Then he goes back to the struggle that he had when he was under the law. Then he goes right into Romans 8 to show the victory that we have through Jesus, which is not the defeat that you read all about in Romans 7. Are you still with me? In fact, I think it's fascinating that in verses 5 through 24, Paul uses the word I, of I, 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 a whopping 28 times. 
He used the word law a whopping 21 times. The word sin, 16 times. He used the word me and my, 17 times. He used the word dead and death, 13 times. You know a word you don't see? Even once? When you go through Paul's struggle, verses 7 through uh, 24, until you get to 25 where he gets the victory through Jesus, you don't see the word Holy Spirit or the term, you don't see the Holy Spirit mentioned or even the name of Jesus or Christ mentioned one time in verses 7 through 24. Because it's him against the law in the flesh trying to obey God as a Jew. Are you with me? So don't let someone say, oh, look, this is our Christian life now. Okay, I'm convinced because it came out of Gnosticism that that's a ploy of the devil to make the church what the church has become today. One of the many ploys Satan has used. I really believe that. In fact, uh, guess what? I counted them up. <laughs> In Romans 6 through 8, if you, I, I counted Jesus and I counted Christ two different times, okay? Romans 6 and Romans 8. And you find Jesus or Christ 24 times in chapters 6 through 8. But you don't find him mentioned one time in verses 7 through 23 when Paul talks about his struggle because he's talking about being under the law. That context showed that up. Starts all the way from when he was a child before he even knew the Mosaic law. And he goes through it. Okay. And then it comes to a climax. It's just actually a very, very beautiful passage. And it breaks my heart. And man, it's like the rainbow. What a beautiful thing God's made, but it gets twisted into something that was never meant to mean to justify perversion. Same thing happens with Romans chapter 7. Number two, and these contrasts will be a lot quicker. They need to be. I'm looking at that clock. Man, no way. Number two, Romans 7 to 23, Paul in chapter 7, we're contrasting Romans with 6 and 8, which show the victory of the Christian life. And Romans 7, the answer to Romans 7 is the context and, the, and Romans 6 and 8, as I mentioned. Romans 7 23, Paul was a prisoner to sin in chapter 7. Look. But I see a different law in my members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. However, in Romans chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, Paul is set free from the prison of sin. Verses 6 and 7 of Romans 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, but he has what? But he who has died is what? freed from sin. We're no longer imprisoned to sin. Amen? Number three, in Romans 7, when Paul was under the law, he talks about being enslaved, not just a prisoner, but enslaved to sin. 7.14 says, for we know the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold into bondage to sin. The NIV says of the same verse, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. However, guess what? In Romans 6 and Romans 8, he's not a slave to sin anymore. Romans chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? Some grace changers say that. He says, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? We're no longer slaves to it. In fact, he makes it really clear in verses 17 and 18. Go to Romans 6, 17 and 18. But thanks be to God. Remember, he got victory from the law because of Jesus, who will save you, wretched man that I am, from this body of death. And he says, thanks be to Jesus Christ. We'll look at verse 17 and 18 of Romans 6. But thanks be to God that though, uh, that though you were slaves to sin, though you were slaves to sin, that's the Romans 7's condition, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became what? Slaves of righteousness. Romans 7, he's a slave to sin. Romans 6 and Romans 8, he's a slave to what? Sin? No. Slaves to what? 
righteousness. Amen. Chapter 6, verse 22, the first part of it. But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God. Paul makes it crystal clear that in Romans 6 through 8, Christians are no longer in the flesh as slaves to sin and prisoners of sin, but that the Christian has been set free from that prison and is no longer a slave to the sin of which Paul was enslaved in verses 7 through 24. Number four, the fourth contrast. In Romans 7, when Paul was under the law of Moses, he declares that there was nothing good that dwelled in him. Romans 7, nothing, you know. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is my flesh. Because he, he was empty, he was Christless, you know. But guess what? In Romans 8, 9, something really good dwells in him in Romans 8. However, you are not in the flesh. See, now he's not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God, what? Dwells in you. Amen. Now we have the Holy Spirit. We have Jesus and the Father dwelling in us. Amen. In the fifth point, fifth contrast, in Romans chapter 7, Paul is unable to keep God's holy law. He's unable to do it. He's trying, but he can't do it. Romans 7, 14. Look at this. Look at Romans 7, 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, soul, and bondage to sin. He, he can't do it. He's, he's of the flesh. He can't, he can't get the victory. However, in Romans 8, verse 4. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 4. So that the requirement of the law, or as the King James has it, the righteousness of the law, God's moral law now, his righteous law, because now we have the law of Christ, amen? The, the requirement or the righteousness of the law might be what? Fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but what? According to the spirit. You catch that? In Romans 7, it's all about him walking in the flesh, amen? And not being able to live a holy life. In Romans chapter 8, verse 4, he no longer walks in the flesh, but guess what? He now, guess what? The righteousness of the law is fulfilled in him because he's not walking according to the flesh. He's able to obey God's commands now. Not perfectly. We still struggle with sin. And that's one reason a lot of believers, if they don't look at the context closely, can go, oh, Romans 7, I can relate to that. Well, yeah, we all struggle with sin. But that's not the Romans 7 struggle. Paul's not struggling with sin, his flesh versus the spirit in that battle. Okay, that's in Galatians 5, which we'll look at briefly in a little bit if we have time. Paul is talking about a whole other battle in Romans 7. It's a powerless, defeated battle that he loses every time. And when we have Christ in the power of the Spirit, we have victory. Number six, the sixth point, the sixth contrast. In Romans 7, Paul is trying to keep the law to be right with God, right? Now, point five, he's uncapable to keep, keep the law. There's a distinction here. He's unable to keep it. But in Romans 7, he's trying to keep the law to be right with God, Romans 7, 25. So then, on one hand, I might, uh, myself, I myself, with my mind, am serving the law of God. But on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Now, it's interesting. He's serving, he's trying to serve the law of God. However, in Romans chapter 7, verse 4, look at it. Before he starts to get into what his life was like after he, uh, because of the law. Look what he says in verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to what? The law. You were made. So in Romans 7, when he describes his pre-Christian experience, he's under the law. But he's saying as a Christian, when he gets in the argument of contrast in the two, we're not under the law of Moses now, amen? In fact, if you find yourself, oh, I'm in Romans 7, well, then you're under the law of Moses. That's legalism. You can't keep the law. You're damning yourself, okay? Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, who will save me from this. Remember, Jesus, all comes back to Jesus, man. He's central focus of our victory, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that, he might, uh, that we might bear fruit to God, okay? So in Romans 6 and 8, Paul's not trying to keep the law of Moses, but he states that we are saved by God's grace. Romans 6, 14, 
for sin shall not be master of you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Amen? Now, the righteousness of God, the morality of the law, is fulfilled in us, the law of Christ. But we're not under the law of Moses, which he's under in chapter 7. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through or in Christ Jesus our Lord. The seventh contrast. In chapter 7, Paul's a miserable, defeated worm. You just read it. Just a miserable, defeated worm, okay, of a man. He can't win the race against sin. However, in Romans chapter 8, guess what? You get to Romans chapter 8, and he's more than a what? Conqueror. Look at verse 37 in Romans 8. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who what? Loved us. Amen. I got to move on. Romans chapter 8. In Romans 7, Paul is utterly condemned by the law of God. He's condemned by the law of God. Romans 7, 24. Wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? He's just miserable, you know? He has a horrible conscience, by the way. But you know, when you read in the book of Acts three different times, Paul says he has a pure conscience before God, amen. How? Because it's a different story now, amen? Uh, yet he's a miserable man. Yet in Romans chapter eight, verse one, he's under condemnation. Who's gonna save me from this body of bondage of death? I'm doomed! But guess what? Romans eight, one, no more being doomed. Why? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Amen. Not wretched man, I am. who's going to save me? No, now we are saved and we have no condemnation because Jesus paid for our sins, he died for our sins, and he's given us newness of life. And we aren't perfect and we still struggle against sin, we struggle against the flesh, but we don't, we're not in wanton rebellion against the Lord anymore, amen? Hallelujah. Romans chapter 9, Romans 7, Paul, or not chapter 9, ninth contrast. In Romans 7, Paul is spiritually dead. He's spiritually dead under the law. Romans 7, 9 and 10. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. We read that, but I wasn't making the point of a contrast that he's dead there, but he's alive now in Romans 6, 22 and 23. Chapter 6, listen to this. But now, having been freed from sin and, and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life, which we have now, by the way. Whoever has the Son has the life. Amen. These things are written in First John that you may know that you have eternal life. You die today, you trust in Jesus, you already have eternal life. You'll be with the Father. Amen. For the wages of sin is death, but the freedom of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 8, 6. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. In Romans 7, he's dead. In Romans 8, he is alive. The 10th contrast. In Romans 7, Paul states that he's a prisoner of a certain law. Now we're talking about being a prisoner of sin now. We're not talking about a prisoner to uh, uh, being enslaved or, uh, to sin and so forth. That's part of it, yes. But I'm, my point here is the contrast. The contrast, he talks about being under that law. He's under a law. In Romans 7, Paul is under a law that he can't win. He can't win. He's under a law. What's that law? Look, look at, go ahead and look at Romans 7, 23. But I see a different law in the members of my waging war. This is important, 7, 23. But I see a different law and Mark, you don't want to miss this one. This is the ninth point. Man. I mean, tenth point. It's a really good one. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me what? A prisoner. It's a what? He calls it what? The law of what? The law of sin. The law of sin, which is in my members. So in Romans 7, man, Paul's under the law of sin. But guess what? Guess what, brothers and sisters? Go to Romans chapter 8, verse 2. He's no longer under that law. And it makes it crystal clear. Listen to what he says. For the law of the spirit of life, another law, the law of the spirit of life in Christ. You have the Holy Spirit in Christ mentioned. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has what? Set you free from the law of sin and of death. I mean, we could have just used those two verses. I think it would have done the job. We're no longer under that law of sin and death. Amen. 
The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus set us free from Romans 7 condition. If you're in Romans 7, you're like, this is my life. I just live, I, you know, I want to do what's right, but I constantly live a wicked life and I, I'm committing adultery. I'm getting drunk all the time. I'm, I'm spitting on people. I hate people. I don't want to forgive them. I'm not gonna, but part of me wants to, but I just don't. I just live a wicked life. Guess what? You're not converted then or you're backslidden. You're under conviction. That's good that you're convicted that you want to do what's right. Well, you better, you know, you need to, you know, be led. You need to come to Christ. Or if you come to Christ and you've fallen back into where you're just in rebellion to God, you need to repent and get right, Amen. You can get right. He loves you. You have the power of the Spirit and the person of Jesus Christ available to you. Number 11. In number 11, when Paul explains his personal struggle with sin under the law, okay, it's interesting. There's not one single mention I, I, meant, I told you of the Holy Spirit, right, or Christ. But guess what? In Romans chapter 8, I counted 21 mentions of the Holy Spirit in just Romans chapter 8 alone, alone. okay? Number 12, last major point. In Romans 7, Paul is trying to please God in the power of his flesh and defines in his flesh he's powerless to overcome sin. Romans 7, 14. So this, now the emphasis is the power of his flesh. For we, now, we know the law of spiritual, but I am, I am fleshly, sold in the bondage of sin. Romans 7, 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, you know. It's talking about his total inability. But look at Romans chapter 8, 9 and 10. Now he's not trying to serve by the power of the flesh. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit now. That's where your victory is, by the way, brothers and sisters, relying on God and his spirit to overcome sin through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 9 and 10. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the what? Spirit, amen? You want to rely on the paraclete, the Holy Spirit of God, the third person, the triune Godhood, will give you power to overcome sin. We don't have that power before we come to Christ. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. Before we came to Christ, we were powerless to overcome sin. In Romans 5, 6, Paul says this. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, that's when Paul was in Romans 7, Christ died for the ungodly. Amen? We now serve in the power of the Holy Spirit, not in the flesh. Romans 5, 8, 5, Romans 8, 5 through 8 says this. For those who are in accord with the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are in accord with the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset in the flesh is death. That's Romans 7. But the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God. Paul tried, but he couldn't. He would give in to the rebellious part of his flesh. For it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Paul found out he was not able to do so in Romans 7. He couldn't have victory, could he? Okay? So Paul wrings his hands in frustration, you know, in Romans 7. Who, who will save me from it? Lifts him up maybe. This body of death, thanks be to Jesus. Amen? Jesus gives us the victory. Amen? I'm looking on the clock, and I wanted to save enough time to show you and really encourage you on how to walk in victory. So that's going to be part of two as well. Part two is going to, which I was going to talk about as well anyway in part two. Part two is Wednesday, okay? Because we already have Sunday's message coming up. I've already been working, have, have that ready. Uh, but Wednesday, do you want to have victory over sin? Amen. By the way, there is a struggle we have. Listen, listen, everybody, listen. There is a struggle that we have with sin. We all know it, right? But in Galatians 5, it places it in a totally different camp. It's the spirit against the flesh, the Holy Spirit, and our flesh against the spirit. 
and it's counting the old man dead. In fact, I'm going to leave you with just two verses in Romans 8 because I don't want you to leave empty-handed with this exhortation. Look at verses 12 and 13. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, right? For if you are living according to the flesh, you must, what? Die. But if you, by the Spirit, but if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will what? Live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. So brothers and sisters, you have victory through relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. When you are born again, you were powerless before you were born again. But when you say, wretched man that I am, you beat your chest like that guy Jesus talked about in the temple. You know, couldn't even lift his eyes to God. He was left right with God. The presence, or I'm sorry, the penalty of sin was relieved because of what Jesus would do on the cross. And now he has done for us. Amen. But you still have the power of sin after you were born again. You have that fallen nature. Okay? But you have received this new nature whereby the Holy Spirit, where partakers of the Holy Spirit lives in us and transforms us. It's no longer we that live, but Christ that lives in us, right? Now you rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to get victory. Now you have power to overcome sin, right? You're called to put to death the deeds of the body that you used to do and live according to the Spirit. So if you are a Christian, you've been hiding behind Romans 7, I beg you in the name of Jesus to turn from that twisted view of Romans 7, amen, and recognize that you are supposed to have victory in Christ. Don't be deceived, amen? Turn to Jesus and say, if you haven't been saved, say, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. Save this wretched man that I am. Forgive me of my sins. You'll be forgiven. But also you'll be empowered now because the Holy Spirit doesn't just save us from the penalty of sin, but saves us from the power of sin. Amen. So now you can live a righteous and holy life to where you don't have to cheat on your wife or on your husband, right? You don't have to be a drunkard or a, a pothead or any of those things. You don't have to be filled with bitterness and anger. Oh yeah, you're still going to struggle with temptation because you still have that flesh there that's constantly knocking, wanting you to resurrect it. But you say no to the flesh. I'm going to live by the power of the Holy Spirit and live for Jesus and give him glory because he died to set me free, not only for the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin. Amen? Amen. So we give glory to God and we live for his glory and that ought to be how we are living. Now, we're going to get more into that because Galatians chapter 5 goes through that real Christian struggle, which is our struggle, the spirit against flesh and flesh against spirit. But he shows us how to get victory just as Paul does in Romans chapter 8. So I can't wait till Wednesday because we'll explore how to, how many are into that victory? How many want that victory in Christ? We can grow in that victory. And that's why Paul writes as he does. I'm looking forward to that time. And we'll also see Paul's use of the present tense. So we get a little bit academic as well, which will be fun. But I love you guys. And I love the fact that we have God's truth. It doesn't matter what people say, he's given it to us, amen. And he came to set us free. The true and ultimate independence day is found in Jesus, amen. Let's all stand and pass out the cup. Glory to God, amen. Give him glory, amen. We love you, Father. We praise you, Jesus. Jesus, fill us with your spirit and use us to your glory, Lord. Hallelujah.